Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Stefan Prieschenk is the Chief Operating Officer of Rocket Factory Augsburg, or RFA, a company in the south of Germany that is developing a low-cost launch vehicle. Indeed, Stefan's vision is to drastically reduce the cost of access to space through large-scale industrialization of their operations and manufacturing. Key to RFA's design approach is a holistic performance and cost optimization tool that has been developed in collaboration with space industry veterans, MT Aerospace and OHB. This approach has led to interesting design choices. For example, the second stage tank is based on inexpensive stainless steel construction, and in places where composite materials are being used, RFA is relying on automotive-grade materials that have already been used in high-volume production. In their propulsive system, however, RFA is chasing the highest performance, a closed-cycle staged combustion engine, enabled by modern manufacturing capabilities in 3D printing, and which is due to be hot-fired early next year. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Stefan and I talk about Stefan's vision for rocketry and hypersonic flight, his background at Rocket Lab and Empty Aerospace, the gap between the European and the US space sectors, RFA's launch vehicle and design approach, and Stefan's vision for the European space sector. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Stefan Prieschenk. Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, nice um, being here. Thanks for the invitation. So before we start talking about your company, Rocket Factory Augsburg, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? So what is your background in engineering and uh, how has your career evolved to where you are today? So I basically, um, ever since I was a child, I was just obsessed with anything technical. I don't know where it came from. I, I, I suppose um, this is just a hypothesis, but I suppose it was because most of my friends, they had um, at very young age, they were toying around with all sorts of um, motorbikes and that sort of stuff and uh, my parents told me this stuff is too dangerous and this sort of sparked such an an interest and such a, a crave towards anything engineering anything that turns um, energy into motion and that uh, it, it's really almost an obsession with me I, I start thinking this when I wake up and um, I often can't sleep because I'm thinking about engineering and um, I studied engineering here in Germany and then I had opportunities to um, go to the US and then to Australia, France, um, basically 
all over the the, the planet and um, work on um, rocketry. Yeah, it sounds like a really broad background. That sounds amazing. Amazing. You've definitely been around the world. How how did that experience then translate into your current company, Rocket Factory Augsburg? So, you know, how did the company start? Start. Who's involved? And you know, maybe tell us a little bit about the inception story of your company. The inception was um, for me personally. It was born very very early. I um, when I finished my studies here in Germany, I desperately wanted to do hypersonics, which is basically, um, it revolves around something called scramjets. They're basically air-breathing engines without any rotating parts. They only work if you're um, flying already at supersonic speeds. And um, I was just super interested in that topic. And uh, I managed to secure an internship in the U.S. that um, was not on that specific topic, but um, I got sort of into the um, into an environment where um, that opened up further opportunities to sort of continue working on that in that field. And um, I, when I was in the U.S. in that 12-month um, exchange um, period, I learned that, in fact, Australia has um, performed some of the groundbreaking work in this field of hypersonics. And um, I got a few contacts, and this is... Um, how it all evolved um, just a few months after that I was I found myself in Australia and that's where I spent eight years of my life working on hypersonics. The idea was always the same. The idea was to get to orbit faster um, with less cost in a more ecological way, more reusability. I then had the opportunity to transition into industry um, and that was actually a young startup called Rocket Lab. That's where I basically helped to develop the um, the orbital vehicle. And this is how I basically got into that field that allowed me to have this career. After that experience, I went back to Germany out of um, personal reasons. I found um, a, a company here in Germany, Empty Aerospace, who um, are right now their suppliers for the Ariane 5 and the Ariane 6 vehicles. And um, they basically had plans together with OHB to build a small launch vehicle. And this is how um, I ended up here. That sounds really fascinating. One of the interesting things, you know, about your background about Rocket Lab is that one of the very first guests actually on this podcast was Lachlan Matchett, who's the head of propulsion, I believe, at Rocket Lab, um, so I don't know if you if you actually know him or if you met met him, but he was kind enough to be kind of one of the very first guests on the podcast, which was a really great conversation. I know Lachlan very well. He's um, an amazing engineer. He's um, the the brain behind Rutherford, and what he and his team have um, created in this short period of time is truly truly amazing. Absolutely. So you previously alerted, alluded to, you know, s some of your visions about, you know, cheaper, quicker, and maybe more, even more ecological access to space. So could you talk about, you know, kind of like the overall goal and vision of Rocket Factory Augsburg? So what have you set out to achieve in, in the long run? Yeah, so our vision in a nutshell is fast, inexpensive, flexible access to space. And this is something that doesn't exist right now. We, we're living in a, in a period where we see a lot of companies 
developing solutions to finally or eventually enable that. But as of today, um, this is not the case um, by a far stretch. If you look at getting into orbit and you do the maths, you realize that per kilogram you per kilogram that you want to send into orbit, lower Earth orbit, between it's a few hundred um, dollars of fuel to get into orbit. But then you look at the actual launch prices and you realize this is just it's orders of magnitudes greater than this, right? If you think about a an um, a system that can put things into orbit, first of all, you would realize it takes a lot of energy and that relates to basically propellant. And then you would ask yourself, well, how much how much is the cost of that propellant? You realize a few hundred dollars and then you could say, well, surely it must be possible to get um, to get stuff into orbit for less than a uh, thousand euros per kilogram. But this today does still not exist. The industry right now is at the point where it can offer somewhere between five and ten thousand euros per kilogram, but it's still far away from where it needs to be, in my view. So I guess so Rocket Factory Augsburg is, is working towards this vision. And I guess the, the first kind of stepping stone that I've been able to read up about on the internet is that you've recently signed this memorandum of understanding with, if I pronounce it correctly, Andoya Space. So what is this memorandum of understanding about and why is it so significant? It's significant because in Europe, we basically rely on a single launch site for accessing space. We're living through a time now where we will have to rethink the entire European space economy. Most importantly, it's drastically underfunded. This is the reason why the US is basically number one in this domain. Um, per person, the space funding in the US is about five times higher than it is in Germany. And if you make an average across the European Union, it's actually much worse than that. We basically need to create a, um, an industrial infrastructure where competition can allow to bring out the best technical solutions. And um, the spaceport is just one example. We have one right now. It's more or less a monopoly, if you want to be frank. And um, monopolies cannot compete in this world, right? They just don't, they can't compete. And we need to be competitive. We want to be competitive with the US. We want to compete against China and India. And the only way to allow this to happen is to create some internal competition first and make sure that we bring out the best internal technical solutions before we um, go and um, compete against on a global scale. And Andoya is basically one of the most promising tickets to be um, a new player when it comes to orbital launch sites. Andoya is um, not located at the equator, but you don't need to be because most of the market flies into polar orbits. And if you look at Andoya, it's perfectly located to fly into polar orbits. And this is where we predict most of the market for these smaller launch vehicles is going to be. 
Now, you just mentioned this interesting thing about monopolies and not having enough funding as well, let's say in Europe and perhaps even in Germany. But I mean, what I've recently you know, heard is actually quite a lot of buzz about the space sector in, in, in Germany, that there's lots of new developments coming out of Germany, not, a lot of new kind of startups, new space companies. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, is Germany investing more in, in this sector at the moment? Germany and France were always the um, the backbone of the European um, institutional space programs, but I think it's um, it, it's a catch up right now. Right, German politicians and German industry has understood that the US is far ahead. I personally think it's about at least ten years, and um, there's a huge gap now. There's a huge gap to catch up to. Sure, you hear a lot of people saying that the technological gap is small, but look, we're not talking about technology only. Sure, the technological gap may be small, but it's the industrial gap, which is huge. We have um, no equivalent to SpaceX. We have no equivalent to Blue Origin. It's just really painful to see how the future is made and invented in the US, whereas we lag behind and the best example is Starlink now. Starlink is the, is the greatest technological achievement that man has probably made in this decade, right? Suddenly, uh, the average Chinese household can get unfiltered internet and there is no more big, great firewall for anyone. It's one of the biggest achievements and it's, of course, made in the US. And um, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating for me as an engineer to see that this gap continues to exist. And it's not just me who has that opinion. I have found that most people I talk to in the European scene, they agree. Most people say, um, we know, right? How can we change this? We've, we've been trying so hard, but um, it's got to start with initiatives and it's got to follow with funding. We have to increase space funding. We spend about the German numbers between 20 and 30 euros per person per year for space and that's really sorry but that's just stupid this is the future um this is a future sector that will define a lot of future um economies and the fact that we're spending so little in that field is just it's just stupid yeah absolutely i think the the amount of funding per person or so per head as you just um mentioned is actually lower than it was in the in the 90s so it's actually lower than it was 20 years ago so there has definitely not been uh, enough funding in the area and this is also one of the things that we because you mentioned discussions around europe that are often talked about um in the uk where i am based that you know of course you have to have some uh, you know bigger projects that you fund that could perhaps lead to something like SpaceX or Blue Origin but at the very same time you also have a much broader kind of supply chain that you need to start building up and in the US you have a very strong supply chain that supplies all of these companies and um, to some degree this is kind of lacking in in Europe so changing just a little uh, gears a little to some of the technical aspects because you said you know of course you want to make access to space faster and, and cheaper could you maybe talk through some of the general capabilities of the launch vehicle that you're developing so you know how big is it um, what's the payload capacity the number of stages um, the orbits that you're targeting uh, targeting things like that yeah yeah definitely would love to do so so the the way it all started is when we came or when i came here to germany I um, had the great opportunity to understand how this works in Europe, 
um, empty aerospace is building Arian or is, is involved in the development of Arian 6. Beautiful vehicle, beautiful engineering, um, but very likely not competitive against Falcon 9. It was for me very frustrating to see that and um, to be more competitive than the competition. We said we we're going to use a an approach that uh, at least I do not know of anyone um, following. We coded up a an optimizer tool that basically is capable of optimizing the entire vehicle and the trajectory at the same time. So the the backbone of this entire project is this optimizer that's fed with industry data. It's something that a startup typically doesn't have. It's something that we did have from the beginning because we had OHB, a satellite manufacturer, and MT, a launch vehicle manufacturer in the back. So you have to, um, the way to look at it is there's a mathematical tool that can basically optimize your vehicle for the best performance, but that does not do um, really what you want. What you want is you want the, the best economical solution. And for the optimizer to resolve that, you need to feed it with data. For instance, we have a, we covered it to a large database that basically asked, that answers to the optimizer. Um, when the optimizer asks, look, what is the most economical way to make a tank that has roughly this volume? And then this database will answer, look, if you make it from this material and you choose this wall thickness, then the welding is really easy and the weld seam will only be $2 per um, 10 centimeters and the material will only be $3 per kg. And it will basically do the, the entire economical optimization at the same time. And this is, has led to our concept. We believe it's a, a very competitive concept. It's based on stainless steel. It's a three-stage vehicle. The third stage is um, an orbital stage. Depending on the payload, it typically um, becomes orbital by itself, in which case we use it for orbital maneuvering or deploying secondary customers in, in different altitudes. Um, and in the most optimized case where we fly um, the highest payload, we think that we can ultimately get down to below um, $5,000 a kilogram. And this is the holy grail. I think SpaceX has put this number out as rideshare missions, $5,000 per kilogram into orbit. And um, our goal from the very beginning was to, be, to, it, to beat that number or be at least at that threshold. And this is what the, um, the new thing here is. The, Everything, all the manufacturing processes, all the assembly processes, they're all based on large databases that basically have resolved the least expensive way to, um, to make this product work. But it's a completely industrialized vehicle. It's um, not the highest performing vehicle because the optimizer actually says, look, I don't, if I go all out performance, I'm actually I'm tracking along a path where I do not end up at the lowest cost per kilogram. If you ask for the most economical way to get into space, the vehicle just looks different in all details. And um, the best example here is stainless steel. We've had this, um, we resolved this before SpaceX announced that um, Starship um, will be stainless and they scrapped all their composite work. It was difficult for us because a lot of the um, 
the more experienced engineers, they questioned whether or not this is truly the case. Well, you know, why would you use heavy stainless steel to build a, a vehicle? That just makes no sense in the beginning. It only makes sense when you follow the path through the optimization and you realize that the manufacturing is, you can industrialize it to the point where it's so dirt cheap, where you can compare it really to automotive. The best example is large automotive companies. The reason why they make chassis out of steel is because it's just damn cheap. Um, there are automotive companies in Germany that crank out complete chassis um, for less than a thousand euros per chassis. And that's most of the mass of the car. And this is where basically we want, we want to, um, to go to. We want to have an industrial setup that just brings out the most economic solution. Right. That's actually really, really interesting because, you know, especially with your background at Rocket Lab, who were one of the kind of very first companies to almost go, you know, completely carbon composite. What you're saying is that, of course, carbon composite might have some kind of structural advantages in terms of being stronger and lighter, but that if you actually just maximize for um, economic costs and, uh, you know, then that's kind of ties in with um, manufacturing capabilities, that if you make that the objective of your of your optimization, then steel just naturally pops out. Exactly. This is, is, that, is that correct? That, that is correct, at least on the first and second stage. And that's simply because we, we managed um, as an industry to get metal to the point where it's just uh, cheap. Uh, you, get, you can um, pick up special alloys, special steel alloys that give you close to 2,000 megapascals in strength. And um, you realize that the cost is just so exceptionally low because of the industrialization behind it. Right? Steel is used just about everywhere and composite isn't and the um one of the main factors why the optimizer chooses the steel route is joining if you the raw material is one thing but the um if you want to be competitive overall you have to make sure that you can reduce costs you reduce cost in the manufacturing by simply making sure that it's built fast a product is expensive if um, if it's in the production line for a long time and everything takes a long time and the cool thing about steel is joining with welding is just exceptionally fast you weld something and just a few minutes later it's done if you do that with composite where you have to cure it's very difficult because these curing cycles are very long and um, we have gotten into this optimizer actually looking at thermoplastic composites that can be welded as well but um the the basically the industrialization part of that is not at a point where it makes economical sense so long story short the beautiful thing about steel is that you can join it with welding in a very fast and efficient manner and with composite that isn't the case you need a lot of labor and um, even if you can if you, even if you take out the labor and you do it with automated production environments it still takes a lot of time and if you want to join section one to section two and it needs five hours as compared to another method that does it in just a few minutes then there's an inherent disadvantage that you it, it's, it's going to be very difficult to sort of take that out again in the overall equation 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love this example because it's such a counterintuitive um, result, but it, of course, it makes absolute sense when you when you go through it that way and, and you explain it um, as as you just did. So, yeah, I absolutely love this example, and it also shows that you know engineering is not just kind of optimizing necessarily for for one thing or the most high performing. You have to there are other things in your development process that you have to take account of and join together to find um, the best overall solution. Now, one of the things that I think where you are going for very high performance um, is in your propulsion system. So what I've read is that you're thinking about developing a closed cycle stage combustion engine. Um, now, if this is the case, could you perhaps explain some of the benefits of this route? And of course, you know, closed cycle engines are really, really difficult to get right. So how do you intend to overcome some of the challenges in um, this propulsive system. Okay, I would love to. Would love to get into the details. So basically, in the beginning, the vehicle, the first vehicle, was made out of composite, and it used an open cycle gas generator. And it's only the optimizing tool that has basically changed all of these decisions away from what we thought was most rational towards something that we first thought is really irrational, and um, took us a lot of time to understand in the aftermath. The thing with the engine is very interesting. Traditionally, you would probably not build a staged combustion motor because it's more complex and the complexity is a strong function of cost. But funny enough, with 3D printing, this is no longer the case. So if you print 20 kilograms of Inconel in a fashion that is um, basically in a part that is less complex as compared to another one, you realize that the overall cost difference is very small. So basically, the optimizer looks at what, what is 3D printing in its essence in cost, and then it has told us that basically the increased complexity does increase cost, but not nearly as significantly as people would have, or as people think from past programs where they did not have 3D printing. So the, the answer of why staged combustion for us made most sense is simple. It has um, a 10% higher ISP. And this 10% is allowing us to basically cut costs everywhere else. It allows us to build much cheaper tanks. And it allows us to basically reduce the performance index of every other system on the launch vehicle. And we have realized that the increase in cost from going from a gas generator to the stage combustion engine is not as big as previously thought. And the main driver there is the fact that it's um, a complexity function that um, scales primarily only with mass, but no longer with the actual complexity, simply because the, the, the manufacturing process is already 3, 3D printing. So in other words, to, to put it in a nutshell, you, the stage combustion motor is heavier. That additional mass is um, the same per kilogram cost than the gas generator. It's just heavier, but the increased complexity does not result in an additional factor that makes it significantly more expensive. It's more like almost linear. The stage combustion motor is 30% heavier, it's 30% more expensive, but it's not three times more expensive. The difficulty of this and the holy grail is obviously, as you already mentioned, 
getting the system together and making sure it's right. That is the difficult part. But see, this is a one-off cost. It's a one-off. Do I have an engineering team that can resolve the difficulties at hand and make sure we find a, a set of parameters that gives us this high ISP or not? This is a risk. But for the business case that will develop from there onwards, it's mostly recurring cost. And that's recurring cost not just for the engine. It's the recurring cost of the entire vehicle. And by choosing stage combustion, we could reduce the performance requirements of all other systems. Or frankly, it's not us. The, the optimizer is doing this by itself. And it's suddenly using one and a half millimeter stainless steel on the tanks instead of one millimeter. And that cuts out cost by 30% right there. And um, there's lots of other examples on the composite interstages, for instance, we're able to move away from the really high quality composites. We can, we can use lower automotive grade composites. And that cost saving there is significantly higher than the additional linear cost of basically increasing the mass of this motor by say 30%. Right, very interesting, yeah. So if we um, look at maybe some of the kind of organizational challenges that you face as, as a small company, of course, in the kind of traditional setting, it was usually kind of government funded agencies or you know private companies with rather deep financial pockets that develop these launch vehicles. So what do you think are some of the major technical, or in this case, I guess, non-technical challenges, organizational challenges to build a new launch vehicle as a private small company? It's basically the paradigm shift on um, the paradigm shift of no longer focusing on the rocket science and focusing on the, the service that um, you basically want to provide for the country or the continent or the planet. Um, with institutional funding, that's where it starts. The rocket science is mostly solved, right? The reason why people don't, why some people say it's not solved yet is because they have a job somewhere in an institution that's funded by public money to do rocket science. But frankly, put, this should no longer exist. Rocket science is solved. It's done. We are now in the stage where we just need to industrialize it and make it less expensive. So the biggest organizational challenge here is that um, funding is allocated just to get the end result, the service. The, um, the institutional space business should simply buy payloads or they should simply say, look, we want a Starlink, right? We want to make sure that entire Europe has access to the internet not from the US, not from China, but independently from a publicly funded and made system. And then it should just give out launch contracts and um, allow, this, uh, allow the competition within Europe to bring out the best techno-financial solution. This is like, look, we have the best example in Germany. When East and West Germany united, we had this great example where East Germany had the Trabant, which was a two-stroke car, horrible inefficiency. It had a horrible mileage. It, has, it had exhaust emissions that were beyond silly. And in West Germany, we already had the VW Golf. And if you would compare the two cars, you could clearly, you can tell the entire story what competition is doing. Competition is going to make sure that people get to work in the morning and they go home 
knowing that they have just done the most efficient thing, not necessarily um, the highest performing thing or the least um, the, 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 the path of least resistance. And I think uh, the biggest disconnect is that people do not have the experience. If you would have, if people would have the experience between how this, how the um, the entire setup and how the um, how the feeling and the the motivation is working for an institutional in an institutional environment compared to a private environment, and then um, the, we would change the system very quickly. Now, if you work in an institutional environment, you you do you never have a day where you leave the office being worried about where the money comes from to fund tomorrow. And this is different in the in the private sector. Absolutely. There's definitely a different sense of urgency to technology development or even, I guess in this case, technology exploitation and making um, rocket science, making the space industry more industrial. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Without this kind of um, commercial pressure, it's very difficult to um, progress quickly in terms of um, building up a kind of economy and, and, and a space sector in the long run. So um, just a kind of couple of questions um, to finish. So what is the current state of um, the project at Rocket Factory Augsburg? And what is on the roadmap, roadmap for your near-term future? So the, the current situation is that we've, we've managed to get extremely far for a very small budget. We've spent about... Um, it can be said officially, we spend about 10 million euros and we have um, gotten to the point where we think we have closed the entire closed cycle engine development and we're going into um, test phase now and we're about to hot fire this motor in the beginning of next year and um, we're super excited that we have gotten to this point so fast. We have received help and it has to be said that the um, the key element what why we think we're going to be quite successful is that we, we're not just a startup. We are a startup that has an extremely strong industry link that we can use, but we don't have to use. So our investors in the aerospace, there are 500 people there, uh, more than 500 people that build um, launch vehicles. We have OHB, that's more than 3,000 space engineers, really enthusiastic space engineers that build satellites. This is really the key why we got to where we are so quickly. We didn't have to do everything from scratch. The um, best example is this optimizer tool that we coded up in the beginning. If you would attempt something like this, just the cost databases, it will take you years to develop, but they just existed. And for us, it was two or three meetings away and we had them. The same for the requirements for the satellite. We always say that um, the rocket vehicle that we actually developed is the first vehicle that really is developed by a satellite company. That hasn't existed so far. Rocket guys were always by themselves. They were always companies that just did rockets. This is really the first company um, that develops a rocket completely from the perspective of the satellite manufacturer. It's um, our main investor, OHB, that told us how the satellite of the future looks like and what it needs to get into space. And if you look at that, don't want to disclose all these um, key requirements here, but it's quite different from what launch vehicle offer today. And this is where we are today. We have gotten to this engine design with just a handful of engineers and massive support um, from our investors. 
And um, if we get the 325 seconds of ISP on the first hot fire, I can't promise, but um, we will definitely um, we will definitely make some noise early next year when this engine will run for the first time. Great. I look forward to seeing that. So how can listeners, um, you know, stay up to date, for example, with, with following your developments about your first hot fire? Where's the best place um, they can go to stay up to date with everything that you're up to? Yeah, it's the, um, it's the social media platforms. We mostly use LinkedIn, but we also have our website, which is updated regularly. And um, yeah, these are the two best um, channels to follow. Great. Well, Stefan, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. You've been very gracious with your time. I've learned a lot. You've been very frank about technical details and a lot of the kind of background of, you know, what makes a uh, rocket startup work. Um, so thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a, was a pleasure to be here and talk to you today. If you would like to learn more about Rocket Factory Augsburg, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.